0: Hello, and welcome to Tales from Imperial Russia, with Dr. James White. Episode 22, From Riches to Ruin, the tale of Ivan Tolchonov. In 1796, the 12th century town of Dmitrov, some 80 kilometres north of Moscow, was just settling into a new look. Inside the earthen walls of the medieval fort that formed the town centre, the centuries-old Uspensky Cathedral has lost the dingy and damaged look that had dogged it for much of a century. Most notably, the colossal cracks in each of the drums supporting the five gleaming golden cupolas have been healed. The temple's physical rejuvenation is matched by something of a moral rejuvenation among its serving clergy. The inspections of the building that came with the repair work reveal that the priests were renting out the cellar to a local vodka merchant to store his supplies, a practice that has now ended. Currently, the cathedral takes pride of place on the town square standing tall amidst the collection of government buildings, hosting the police, the court, the town government, and salt storage facilities. Elsewhere in the town, even more profound changes are underway. Before the 1790s, Dmitrov looked much like other medieval Russian towns, its 132 shops and hundreds of homes packed along narrow, maze-like streets curving this way and that, seemingly obeying neither rhyme nor reason as they take the settlement's 3,000-strong populace from one place to the next. For Catherine the Great and her government, this simply won't do. Such a look is not only cluttered, but is also an open invitation for mass fires, as the neighbouring town of Logochova could attest. In 1782, a conflagration there had consumed all but four houses. In 1791, Moscow's governor-general demanded the tearing down of 50 wooden homes in Dimitrov to make way for a new central street, defined by straight lines and crisp right angles. As of 1796, these homes are already gone. Many are being reconstructed, alongside the new paved prospect. And just behind the ram's shackle construction sites that currently form the road's edge is a curious building, the only house in the town to be made of masonry. A stately two-storey neoclassical rectangle, the home is surrounded by luxuriant gardens filled with a variety of rare trees and plants. The other residents of Dimitrov are justly proud of their apples, selling them by the barrel load to Moscow. But this garden has orange, peach and lemon trees as well. A newfangled greenhouse, an outrageous innovation in this old town, sits in the garden, protecting its precious cucumber crop from winter colds and summer storms. Joining it is a large fish pond, regularly restocked with pike, chub and bream. The renovated cathedral, the reorganised street plan and the monumental townhouse. These three new additions to Dmitrov's storied history owe much to one man, Ivan Tolchonov, merchant of the First Guild, distinguished citizen and former mayor. And right now, he's hiding inside his bedroom, emerging only to greet trusted old friends and close family. He doesn't dare go outside, even to visit the cathedral to swear allegiance to the new Tsar, Paul I, who came to the throne on the 6th of November, 1796. Instead, a priest has to come to him to administer the oath, what can scare such an esteemed and well-respected man? Well, his creditors. They have been pursuing him night and day across the country, trying to get their slice of a 90,928 rubles that Ivan owes to assorted parties. To give a sense just how calamitous this sum was, Note that the capital renovation of the 16th century Uspensky cathedral that Ivan oversaw a few years prior had cost around 5,000 rubles. How did Ivan and his affairs come to such a pretty pass? To answer this question, we need to understand something of Ivan's business and social background. Arriving on this earth, on the 15th of October 1754 in Dimitrov, Ivan was the only surviving child of the grain merchant Alexey Torchonov. Alexey's father, Ilya, had made the family's fortune when he grasped the opportunities created by Peter the Great's decision to build a new capital for his empire, the city of St. Petersburg. Facing the Baltic Sea, Petersburg was well placed for international commerce. But the swampy, cold environs offered little in the way to feed the tens of thousands of people who settled there. Grain, the main ingredient of the bread that sustained most of the population, had to be brought from elsewhere, principally the main agricultural regions along the river Volga. Emperor Peter had begun the centuries-long effort to join the Volga and Nieva rivers to allow for this. Dmitrov and its approximate 200 merchants were well-placed to profit, since the town's river was part of this system, joining Moscow in the south to Tver in the north. By 1779, Dmitrov's merchants were buying 5,000 tonnes of grain, ferrying it from as far east as Nizhny Novgorod and Kazan to the imperial capital. As young Ivan was to find out, the grain trade was neither an easy nor safe way to make money. Prices could move up and down quickly due to unpredictable changes in the weather and other events, geopolitical or otherwise. For instance, between 1773 and 1775, the great popular uprising of Yemelyan Pugachev swept through the regions where the Tolchonovs bought their grain. Consequently, the price of this staple product rose dramatically, leading many merchants to make a loss on their fixed government and private contracts. Then there was the river system itself. The wooden canal walls and locks installed by Peter the Great and his engineers rapidly rotted. Large sections of the route were shallow or consisted of rapids. The most dangerous stretch was the River Mista, where one could find the Balavici Rapids, 18 kilometres of rock-strewn white water. Even after escaping this frothing moor, there was Lake Ilmien, shallow and storm-prone. These conditions were exacerbated by the density of river traffic. Between 2,400 and 3,000 boats a year, Travelled in three large caravans in the spring, summer, and autumn. Delays were commonplace, sinkings frequent. One of Ivan's uncles lost four boats to an unseasonable blizzard that struck Nizhny Novgorod in April 1778, an event that claimed a total of 36 boats and 4,000 sacks of grain. Equally, Everything was reliant on a complex web of expertise, stretching from the merchants themselves to their local agents, skilled barge pilots, and the motley collection of barge pullers and locals who worked to help stricken vessels. These latter might not act in good conscience. A government commission of a time believed that peasants by the Baravici Rapids were deliberately placing obstacles in the way of boats, so profitable was the business of salvage. To be a skilled and successful grain merchant then, one had to command a whole range of talents, inexhaustible energy to follow and supervise the shipments. The sociability and charm needed to make and sustain solid contacts with a host of officials, entrepreneurs, professionals and labourers, and an airing nose for opportunity, an ability to make split-second decisions and a spotless reputation necessary to raise credit. All these Ivan's father Alexei had in abundance, bringing the business concerns he inherited from his father and father-in-law to new heights of success. By the time Ivan turned 10, Alexei was Dimitrov's richest businessman and had been elected as its mayor a post he was to hold until a spell of ill health in 1773. Ivan enjoyed a traditional merchant's education. Between the ages of five and 10, he was taught at home to read and write. His father provided him with the mathematics necessary to understand accounting. Just before his 11th birthday in 1765, Alexei began his son's practical training, taking him on a business trip to Petersburg. Evidently, now was the time to accustom Ivan to the arduous travel required of a grain dealer. At 13, Ivan was assisting with the loading and unloading of grain from barges. At 15, he was making grain purchases under the watchful eye of his father's agent. At 16, he was entrusted with managing the family's barges on the stretch of the waterway between Novgorod and Petersburg. The only other formal education he received was when his father charged a monk at the St. alexander Monastery to provide him with a few months of lessons. Although very brief, this implanted in Ivan a lifelong love of reading. The end of Ivan's apprenticeship and his unofficial graduation to junior partner were marked by his marriage in 1773, at the age of 18. The bride in question, the Moscow merchant's daughter Anna Asolgina, was his father's choice and the result of long negotiations between the two families. The betrothed only met each other a week before the wedding. Such arranged marriages were nowhere unusual at the time, merchants, nobles and even peasants undertook them as a matter of course. What was unusual was Ivan's age, only 18. Normally merchant sons got married much later as they had to acquire the capital necessary for a favourable match. Ivan's advantage was that he would inherit the entirety of Alexei's considerable wealth, as he was an only child. The inheritance would not have to be shared out among other sons or given to daughters as dowries. An account by the contemporary noble diarist Andrei Boltov gives us some idea of what Ivan's wedding might have looked like. Merchant weddings were very expensive and everyone acted stupid and silly. A lot of drinking went on. The grandest banquet took place on the second day, the princely dinner. All the most prominent men of the town came for it, together with their wives. The gathering continued for the whole day, and everyone was served tea, punch, and vodka. A huge amount of drink was provided. Then the gift-giving began. All the guests received scarves. An entire trunk full of them was available. Dinner did not begin until about nine in the evening, and they eat, drink, dance and jump around and carry on all night long. If there is music, they play Russian dances. The marriage and Anna's move to the Torchonov family's house in Dimitrov meant that Alexei let his son off from making overly long business trips for the rest of 1773. In this honeymoon year, Ivan travelled a mere 2,300 kilometres and was only absent from Dimitrov for 51 days. Over the next two years, he was to be absent on average for 190 days per year, travelling some 5,000 kilometres each time. These expeditions were exhausting, done as they were either on the grain barges moving upriver or on horseback, riding hard for hours over the dirt tracks that passed the roads in 18th century Russia. Sleep, when it could be afforded, might be grasped at coaching stations and post offices, none of which were well known for the levels of comfort or cleanliness on offer. Sometimes even these were not available, so Ivan had to sleep under the open sky. The work on the barges could itself demand a great deal from a man as young as Ivan. In his very first independent mission in the autumn of 1773, Ivan was entrusted with guiding 13 of his father's barges. After a hard voyage comprised of nothing but delays and losses, Ivan found himself stuck in Novgorod with several of his boats still some way behind. With the weather worsening, Ivan prayed at the local cathedral for guidance and decided to moor his boats for the winter. It proved a very good decision, since the very next night, Ivan found himself trapped on the water by a snowstorm. This decision was a very weighty one for an 18-year-old to take. ...as the business incurred some significant losses... ...that were only made back for next year... ...when the Spring 4 propelled her vessels... ...safely north to Petersburg. Given this strenuous and stressful labour... ...it is perhaps little wonder that Ivan became deadly ill... ...while at work in 1777. On this occasion, the Spring 4 came late and then was undone by several cold snaps. The continual freezing and unfreezing of the high river waters led to jams all along the waterway, and made Ivan's work extremely difficult. Feeling increasingly unwell, he nonetheless resolved to ride on to Petersburg, but soon realised he lacked the strength. Turning back with the aim of getting home to Dimitrov, he was unable to make it, and was forced to seek respite in the home of one of his father's cousins in Torzhok Riding immediately to the aid of his stricken son, Alexei took the almost comatose Ivan back to Dmitrov to begin several months of repose. Given the lack of doctors in Dmitrov, the family turned to religion for Ivan's cure, taking him to pray at a miracle-working image of the Virgin Mary. Fortunately, this seemed to do the trick, By the beginning of 1778, Ivan was back to work. But the normal course of life was not to last for long, for in 1779, Ivan's father Alexei died suddenly while on the road. Staying with the local bishop in the town of Perislavl, Alexei's three horses were stolen. Refusing to wait for their recovery, he rented a horse and continued his trip, but only got 15 kilometres from the settlement before he started vomiting blood. Suffering from a stroke, he lay on the roadside for several hours before a carriage from a local monastery arrived to assist. However, Alexei passed away just as the wagon entered the monastery gates. At the age of just 24, Ivan was now the head of both his father's business and his household. A dreadful responsibility. The signs that Ivan might not be able to shoulder the burden left by his father slowly began to come into view. Perhaps because of his near fatal illness while travelling in 1777 or perhaps because of his seeming fondness for both his wife and his growing family Ivan started to travel much less than his father, only undertaking business trips that took him one or two days away from Dimitrov. This left many aspects of the family's business in the hands of agents, no longer subjected to direct supervision. This seems to have been a particular problem with regards to the agent in Petersburg, who was lackadaisical when it came to pursuing debts owed to the Tolchonov enterprise. Then there were Ivan's hobbies – theatre-going, horticulture, reading, collecting gadgets, and socialising with the high and mighty. Already in 1773, Ivan had come into possession of a pocket watch – a rare and costly piece of equipment given there were only two clock manufactories in the entirety of the Russian Empire at the time. As of 1774, he had begun an interest in gardens and plants, making it a priority to visit public gardens in both Petersburg and Moscow whenever he was in town. Almost as soon as he got hold of his father's money, he began making purchases, buying 70 fruit trees in Moscow and constructing a greenhouse in 1780. And while some degree of hobnobbing with high aristocrats was no doubt expected of a leading merchant of Dmitrov. Ivan seems to have developed both a taste for enjoying the fruits of his life, such as hunting, and a desire to live to the same standards. It was probably this that drove him to construct his eminently fashionable and extraordinarily expensive stone house in Dmitrov in 1785. The empire's aristocrats were worlds apart from its merchants, If not in terms of capital, then in terms of legal status, upbringing and privileges. Nobles were exempt from corporal punishment and the poll tax. Merchants were not. Nobles could own, buy and sell serfs. From the 1750s, merchants had lost this right. So while the Tolchonov family owned a few household serfs acquired before the 1750s, Ivan was raised by a serf nanny, they were unable to acquire new ones. Furthermore, nobles could only lose their status at the order of the ruler. Merchants could lose their status if they were unable to present sufficient capital for inspection, in which case they were busted down to the rank of townspeople and thus could be subjected to conscription. And finally, merchants enjoyed a rough-hewn domestic education aimed to give them only the rudiments necessary for business. Nobles, or at least upper and middling nobles, possessed all the refinements that could be bestowed by the liberal arts curriculum on offer in the private schools and universities of Petersburg and Moscow. It is notable that for at least two of his four sons, Ivan procured secondary education at very pricey Moscow boarding schools. And then there were Ivan's civic duties. Merchants were obligated to serve in town and city administrations, working hand-in-hand with government officials to deal with tax collection, troop billeting and local policing. They sat on local courts which adjudicated over small-scale civil disputes high-ranking merchants like Ivan and his father were expected to take leading positions like mayor or councillor. Doing so had some advantages for merchants. It let them keep abreast of government plans that might affect their businesses and to cosy up to officials with significant levels of influence. But there were also heavy costs. Merchant mayors had to spend much of their time on local administration and whining and dining dignitaries depriving their commercial operations of a necessary attention officials in towns that failed to pay their share of the tax quota were expected to cover the shortfall out of their own pockets in severe cases they could even be subjected to a public whipping ivan was well aware of all of this being appointed to a civil office in 1781 only two years after his father's death. Between 1788 and 1791, he served as Dimitrov's mayor. At first, things went smoothly for Ivan and his family. The grain business continued to make substantial profits, outgoings were controlled, and Ivan assumed the duties and offices bestowed on him as Dimitrov's foremost man of commerce. Problems began to appear, however, at the end of 1785, when it emerged that Ivan had made a profit of 7,000 rubles, but had spent 11,000. To make the necessary grain purchases the next year, Ivan had to borrow 6,000 rubles at exorbitant interest rates. The same pattern now continued for the rest of the 1780s and into the 1790s, While the grain business went from success to success, Ivan's outgoings easily outpaced his profits, with large loans covering the gaps. Money was being poured in every direction with no signs of slowing. Ivan was now trapped in a grim cycle. If he tried to save money by living more modestly, creditors would notice and lose confidence. Refusing to issue new loans and pursuing him for the debt already taken. So his extravagance had to continue, which required more loans. Efforts to bring in more money, like acquiring a playing card factory in Moscow, ended in failure. As his available funds dwindled, so too did his ability to buy the amounts of grain needed to generate a commensurate profit, thus, income from the family firm began to sink into permanent decline. Ivan himself describes his mental state around this time. A kind of nonchalance took control of my reason as I struggled against melancholy and despair. I was ashamed to reveal my dire situation not only to friends but even to my own family and I spent much of my time with chimerical thoughts and gambling which hastened my ruin and I attempted to console myself and push away unpleasant thoughts by using my remaining assets on other diversions. By 1796, the jig was up. Government investigations into Ivan had begun, and his creditors were desperately pursuing him. Some last-ditch measures were taken. Having married his oldest son, Pyotr, to the daughter of a wealthy Moscow merchant, In 1794, Ivan legally relinquished his parental rights over Pyotr and transferred property to him. This would protect his son from the legal fallouts of the inevitable bankruptcy proceedings. Ivan transferred his magnificent Dimitrov townhouse to Pyotr's father-in-law for a nominal fee. It was then sold again to Ivan's friend, the mayor of Dimitrov, for 15,000 rubles. This action incensed Ivan's three uncles, to whom he owed 14,558 rubles. As family, this asset should have been by law presented to them. His house now lost, Ivan left Dimitrov to live in Moscow on the 16th of March 1797, in what he describes as a dark and dirty apartment. The cloud of disgrace and ignominy could hardly have been greater. He had broken every rule in the 18th century manual of commerce, having continually lied about his fiscal solvency to procure more credit. He had betrayed his clan, whose involvement in the business was as deep as his own. He, his wife, and three of his sons had lost the privileged status of merchant, now being ranked as nothing more than petty townspeople. The mansion in Dimitrov and its wonderful gardens were lost. Ivan's serf servants were sold off to a local aristocrat. Even the pocket watch, acquired more than two decades beforehand, was seized in the bankruptcy proceedings. Some friends and family now snubbed him. Perhaps most painful for the socially conscious Ivan was when his friend, the millionaire Countess Orlova, refused to receive him. The only silver lining was that Ivan was not turned into an indentured labourer, as could happen to bankrupts under Russian law. He seems to have dodged this awful fate only because his debts were so high. With the wage of an indentured labourer, it would have taken him around 4,000 years to clear what he owed. Now in much more reduced circumstances, Ivan tried one last time to make a go of his playing card business. But this too quickly failed. The despondency into which Ivan sunk had its inevitable physical consequences. For all of 1800, he was on death's door, bedridden in Moscow. Neither doctors, with their prescriptions of diuretics and concoctions of Spanish fly, nor miracle-working images had much effect until the end of the year. Fearing he was going to meet his maker, Ivan made up with his three uncles, reuniting the family he had fractured. Recovery began a five-year-long period of penance, with Ivan visiting churches and monasteries in Moscow and beyond, as he sought both to express thanks for salvation from his illness and repentance for his evil acts as a businessman. In this darkest night of the soul, Ivan particularly relied on his wife, Anna. Despite having been forced together by their respective families, their marital relations seemed to have always been close and marked by mutual respect. Anna accompanied Ivan on many of his trips during the good years, Not something that all merchant wives did. Her life had been no easier than his. Between 1774 and 1794, Anna had given birth 16 times, but only four sons had survived. And now she too had to endure her husband's disgrace. Only in 1806 did something like regular life resume for the Tolchonovs, with visits to theatres and gardens, once more assuming a role in their lives. Ivan began to recoup something of his lost reputation, being hired to act as a manager at a playing card factory. He proved adept, increasing the business's profits year on year. He and Anna must also have taken pleasure at the lives their sons were able to build, despite lacking their father's lost capital. Pyotr, Having received a private education, experience in the grain trade, a good marriage, and some of his father's fixed assets, did best, becoming a merchant in the cloth trade. He and his wife relocated to fashionable St Petersburg, where they were invited on at least one occasion to attend a dinner hosted by the imperial family. Alexei followed in his father's footsteps in a different way, becoming a horticultural consultant and gardener for various nobles. Pavel also imbibed his father's passions, choosing to become an actor sufficiently famous to be criticised by the internationally renowned Russian poet Alexander Pushkin, and Yakov, the youngest son, went on to manage a shop in Moscow. Despite this modest recovery, Nothing could have prepared Ivan and his family for the events of 1812. A massive French army of around a million men marched on Moscow, leaving destruction and death in their wake. The last entries of Ivan's diary show him hastily dispatching first his assets and then his family to the city of Yaroslavl, some 280 kilometres to the northeast. This is the final peak we get into Ivan's daily life. All we know for certain afterwards is that he died in 1825, still not having recovered his merchant status. Ivan's world, the world of the imperial Russian merchants, was for a long time under-investigated by historians. For one thing, the great classics of 19th century Russian literature had nothing good to say about merchants, despising them as obscurantist money-grubbers, tyrants to their families and lick before the authorities, hiding greed behind a veneer of pseudo-piety. The official Soviet version of history was no kinder, portraying the merchants as the naked fist of imperial Russian capitalism. Ivan's tale shows how wrong these generalised assumptions were. No doubt some merchants were crusty, tradition-ensconced misers who squeezed their underlings and associates for every last penny. Ivan, however, provides a much more nuanced example of a merchant. Deeply religious and often turning to the church for miraculous cures in times of need, he nonetheless had no problem asking secular doctors for their aid. He often mixed for two, kissing holy images one day and taking a medical prescription the next. While having a traditional merchant's education himself, Ivan sought something different for at least two of his sons, dispatching them to fashionable liberal boarding schools. While working deeply in the merchant milieu, he was certainly fascinated by modern fashions, whether theatre-going, gardening or collecting gadgets. Ivan also reveals how precarious the life of a merchant could be. In youth, he was constantly exposed to danger when supervising grain barges. As an independent adult, he suffered the fate of many merchants, going broke thanks to a toxic concoction of heavy government service massively expensive credit and being a spendthrift. In other words, Ivan's tale invites us to look more closely at the Russian Empire's merchants, not as some dark, closed-off corner of society, but as individuals deeply immersed in many of the trends and habits of the period. But this, dear friends, is a tale for another time.